0: Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Okay. So, um, it gives me a real pleasure to to share our our evening with uh, Sheila Katz. Uh, who, as I said, was just sitting on the the month long, and uh, we got to spend some time uh, in her silence. I got to meet with her from time to time, and uh, just a really um, wise, heartfelt, and um, uh, dedicated practitioner uh, who has been spending um, uh, quite a quite a long time getting people to hear each other. isn't that a good thing these days? Uh, and I'll, I'll just uh, just to cover some of the of her resume, um, as she said, she's the author of a new book, uh, Connecting with the Enemy: A Century of Palestinian Israeli Joint Nonviolence. Uh, She received a doctorate in Middle East history from Harvard where she specialized in Palestinian-Israeli relations, organized programs on Middle Eastern women, and taught at Harvard for eight years. Uh, uh, Sheila lived in Jerusalem for six years where she founded one of the early feminist groups and a network for Palestinians and Israelis to confront tough issues together. Um, And uh, boy, if there ever is a time for people to learn how to hear each other and speak to each other, now's the time, uh, both in the Middle East and in our country and all around the world. So uh, I invited her to come and and share the gems from, from her work, and she'll be presenting for a while, and then we'll have a conversation. Open it up to uh, a, a larger conversation with all of us. So, uh, so nice to have you Thank here, you. Sheila.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Can you can you hear me? Um, it doesn't it always seem like when someone introduces you, like there's a big gap between the description and the reality. <laughs> it sounds like oh, I, I'd like to know that person. <laughs> It is. Um, Well, I actually have to tweak something, which is that um, I did the work hands-on with Palestinians and Israelis for about five years when I was in my 20s, and then I went into it um, from a scholarship point of view, and then I finally, um, I've been tracking that kind of work um, over the decades, and then finally put it together. So um, I want to give you a little bit of a sense of how I came to do the work and how the book, the roots of um, the process of this uh, work becoming, taking book form. <laughs> um, yeah, and let's see. I want to, and then I'm going to um, share with you some of the initiatives in the book, it's just to whet your appetite so that you've got to read more. <laughs> so you're grasping now. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the deeper roots, uh, go into what I feel is my first contact with Dharma in the broadest non-jargon sense, which is that um, an older... (laughs) 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 An older friend, when I was 14, an older friend gave me the book I and Thou by Martin Buber. And, um, you know, he's a German philosopher. And I could hardly understand it, but I was so blown away. I was so moved um, because there was something about the concepts that we through which we relate to the world makes everything into an object including ourselves and that there's another way to be that has to do with flow and process and relationship and interconnection and that the reality is always in between what appears to be objects and if you can let go somehow of the concepts and it wasn't clear how to do that <laughs> Um, then there would be this um, deeper, more true, uh, more connected way of being in the world. But just at the time that I was reading that, the other root of um, this, this work that I became involved in, um, really, I came of age in a decade, like many of you here, where there were four assassinations of our national leaders in five years, and there was a groundswell of grassroots work through the civil rights movement, through feminism, through anti-war movement. Um, that was phenomenal to be part of. Of course, um, after the election, I really had to take um, into account in a fresh way how I and we had been part of something that had actually also, besides doing really amazing stuff, perpetuated some polarization. So, um, so there was this deep caring that I was able to... Um, uh, learn from, you know, the times that I came of age in, and um, I thought that organizing was the highest thing at that point, bringing people together to take some kind of compassionate action, and I trained in civil disobedience and got arrested in front of the Newton draft board in the Boston Army base, and um, when the Vietnam War ended, a couple of years after that, uh, I... Um, I was curious to see if the lessons that we learned could be somehow of service to Palestinians and Israelis. So I took my backpack, my hiking boots, and everything I owned was back there, (laughs) and um, flew to Jerusalem, and was there for, as James said, six years. Um, And um, what I took with me uh, to try uh, to to, um, bring Palestinians and Israelis together was Um, Something I had learned as an undergrad called co-counseling, which I think probably some of you are familiar with. And um, co-counseling was one of the most um, powerful and subtle tools at the time of bringing together groups who were from different sides of the inequality divide. And as James said... um, there was, you, you practice a deep, compassionate listening, a non judgmental listening. You sat in front of a person, you held their hands, you looked into their eyes, and they talked about their suffering. And you helped them get to some emotional release through crying, laughing, shaking, sweating, all those things. But basically, what happened was you had to watch your own mind because anything that person said stimulated a response, a reactive um, thing in the mind. And then you had to notice that and then come back to the object of focus, which wasn't an object. It was this flowing human being in front of you. Um, And groups listened to each other. Men listened to women. Uh, Whites listened to African Americans. Non-Jews listened to Jews. Owning class listened to working class. And it was really uncomfortable because you were getting information that was new and that... um, it was hard to say as the person speaking. It was hard to listen. But people would get to go away and do the emotional work they needed so they could hear more clearly. And that's, that's what I um, brought. Um, so, let's see. So I stayed for five or six years and founded the co-council community there. And... Um, So now I invited Israelis and Palestinians to encounter each other as peers for the first time and to learn firsthand of each other's suffering and dignity. Listening to the other shattered stereotypes, exposed inequality, cultivated a sense of respect, compassion, and responsibility for the other. So... um, Let's see. What do, I, what do I want to say about this? I'm trying to skip over, so I don't. Um, so it turns out about, um, I don't know, 20 years later, uh, the second intifada was raging. I had a, another book that was going into press. I had a sabbatical, and I happened to be a scholar in residence at a center where, uh, at Brandeis University, where my research assistant was a young Palestinian woman from then, Communist Nazareth in Israel, and she and her sister had grown up, the next generation in these nonviolent initiatives, and so she became um, uh, a person who helped me start to um, look at this very simple question, which was why the work I did then um, brought people together against um, incredible obstacles, um, difficulty of moving between you know across borders um, and within the West Bank, within Israel, and. Um, risking their lives, because most people on both sides condemned this work. They still do. Um, it's gone through different uh, iterations. So, um, so I gathered over 500 initiatives, and that was the tip of the iceberg. So the 500 initiatives that are in the book represent, um, are representative of um, maybe at least three times more of the initiatives that I found And I was very careful not to include anything that would out a group or a person because that would expose them to more risk. So they had to be visible in some kind of media, print, digital, other. And um, it was astonishing to me that um, just with perseverance, with, you know, every day waking up, looking for them, doing the research, they were there in plain sight. And I figured that there must be something about their hiddenness that had to do with um, enabling the conflict to continue.
0: Right? C- could I just uh, uh, clarify something? When you say you found 500 initiatives, these are, uh, these are activities that were initiated by either Palestinians or Israelis for greater connection, or what, what were the initiatives? Give Thank me you. some, you. some um, understanding so of what they So first of all,
1: I found at least 1,500 initiatives I could not fit that many in the book. And because of that, I have a website now where there are links to 250 initiatives and a place for you to add ones that are not there that you know of or that have happened. The book starts in Ottoman times at the turn of the 20th century, goes through 2010. And I'm going to go through a whole list of the kinds of initiatives they did. I'm going to go through, not a list, but a description. Um, I do want to just say that... um, before I, before I go to that list, that I didn't limit the choices to my own ideological uh, preferences, I cast a wide net. Um, and the power of the work is that it's being done in every field of human endeavor, by people of all kinds of ideologies, from far right to far left and everybody in between. And I, I, I ask the reader the fo- to do the following. Um, I say the striking diversity of ideologies and methodologies of the joint initiatives demands of you, the reader, what the encounters themselves demand of Palestinians and Israelis, that you sit with the discomfort of difference, open yourself to viewpoints that can sound like they're rooted in propaganda, naivete, or treacherous lies. The reader, like the participants, will encounter an array of positions regarding Jewish nationalism, including Marxists, Zionism, socialist, Zionism, secularism, right wing, left wing. I, I go through a long list here, which I won't repeat here. And um, also, same for Palestinian nationalism, um, pacifist and militant, moderate and radical, etc. Um, some readers will see some initiatives as a thin veneer for ruthless aims. If you feel you can't bear to read anymore, keep going. It's possible that if you, the reader, like the participants, allow themselves... To experience unbearable difference and be offended by and reject, feel like you're rejecting, aversi- aversive to the work, while continuing to listen to the multiple contradictory voices of the text, you will gain a nuanced appreciation of both people's courage to be just allies. So here's one initiative that I led. Uh, has anyone heard of um, Nevi Shalom Waha Salam? Yeah, okay. So um, right now it's a bustling, uh, intentional, the first and only intentional village where Palestinians and Israelis have built it together and lived together. They raise their children together in a bilingual school that's um, taught in Arabic and Hebrew. They have a school of peace where tens of thousands or if not hundreds of thousands of people have come through um, to do this work together. And when I was there, um, in the 70s, there was nothing there. It was a blank, you, you, do you remember that? There was a blank hillside. Um, the church of the Latrun Monastery was across the valley who had rented the land to the Palestinians and Israelis for $1. And, um, <laughs> and the, um, the hillside was strewn with purple thistles. The land had not been cultivated in hundreds of years. And there were like rolling folded valleys that uh, you could see in all directions and on the top is a tin shack. And in that shack, um, there were 30 Palestinians and Israelis sitting together for the first time. They agreed to abide by rules that you and I will sound, it will sound pretty familiar, but then it was kind of um, radical. Uh, keep confidentiality. One person speaks at a time. Listen deeply with compassion. Share your life story. No political harangues. Pain blocks fresh ability to think and hear and listen, release of pain opens the mind and the heart, and release occurs when someone receives open-hearted attention. But the personal, of course, was political, so every sentence cut like a knife, and one Jewish Israeli couldn't bear it anymore and broke the rules, shouting, lies, propaganda. And people turned their loving attention to her. First, she attacked the man, dismissed his pain as a scheme to destroy Israel. He was talking about the expulsion of his family from a village and the destruction of the village. Second, <clears throat> she shifted gears to her own story. She said, you don't know what expulsion means until you've walked away like I did from my home in Egypt at the age of eight, clutching the hand of my six-year-old sister as we crossed the desert into Israel. She wept through the details of attacks by Arabs on Jews in Cairo. And then third, the clouds broke, and she began to recount with new clarity the details of the Palestinian man's story, which now broke her heart. Right, so she's sitting there now weeping for his story, appreciating his truth for the first time. She happened to be a speaker in the Knesset, the parliament, and went back with a whole different viewpoint. I also saw... um, Uh, Jews who were survivors of uh, the Holocaust um, telling their story and seeing Palestinians weep because Palestinians in general at that point and even still some today don't study, don't know about the Holocaust. And um, the idea that the people that they see as harmful and oppressive and more powerful actually suffer that changes people's view radically. So these turning points happen all the time. Do I have time for a few more? Okay. After the 67 war, the borders between Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza opened, and a young Palestinian man, Bashir, crossed the border from the West Bank to visit, to knock on the door of his childhood home in Ramla, which is not Ramallah in the West Bank. Ramla is within the Israeli borders. And a young teenage girl, Dahlia, was alone. Her parents weren't home. She opened the door. She saw three Palestinian men and she said, welcome. She didn't know, but she said later on that she had a feeling this moment was going to happen. And it turns out that um, he, his father, his grandfather had built the house, this house in Ramla, and his um, father had planted the lemon tree that she had been tending since she was a little girl he discovered that she was the daughter of a Jewish refugee family. And so over the next two decades, the families crossed borders to visit each other's homes until Bashir and Dalia decided to dedicate their house as the first community center in Ramla for Jews and Arabs to meet, work, play, celebrate, speak. And they called it, does anyone know this one? It's Open House. And there's um, there's a book by Sandy Tolan Called Lemon Tree, but there's a movie called Lemon Tree that I don't think has to do with this. It's a different Lemon Tree, <laughs> I think. I think um, another another story. <clears throat> when Hamas militants killed a 19-year-old Jewish boy from an Orthodox Jewish family, the father discovered that the son had clandestinely been involved in peace activities and didn't want to tell his father because of what they call in Hebrew shalom bayat, peace in the house, right, to keep the peace with his dad. And because of that, the father refused the customary consolation that the government gives that says that they will promise revenge for your son's life. He said, not for my son, do not do that. And instead, he sought out other Israeli and Palestinian families whose children had been killed by the other side. In one of their early meetings, a bereaved Palestinian father interrupted an Israeli father's story of grief, yelling, to tell you the truth, each time an Israeli child is killed, I'm happy there'll be one less soldier to hurt my child. The Israeli father rose, clutching a heavy table, he was a big guy, and he said, to tell you the truth, I would like to take this table now and throw it at you, basically eliminate you, kill you for rejoicing at my child's death. There was a deep silence as the bereaved parents witnessed the roots of the cause of the perpetuation of violence and pledged at that moment that they were going to approach injustice and inequality from a nonviolent point of view and that that would be more of a protection for their loved ones. They formed something called the parents, the bereaved parents circle family forum committing to nonviolence to change their shared future. I'm going to just keep going until you stop me. (laughs) In the middle of the night, an Israeli combat officer and his soldiers raided an Arab home suspected of harboring a terrorist. The officer ordered the father, mother, and two young children into the street while his men searched their house. Suddenly, the girl, the little girl, started running towards him at top speed, and he had seconds to decide whether she was carrying a bomb on her and whether he should shoot her. That moment changed his life and I'll tell you how in a moment. So meanwhile a Palestinian Muslim woman trained to be a suicide bomber in revenge for the suffering of her people. On the day before she strapped the explosive belt under her disguise as a pregnant woman with intent to kill as many Israelis as possible she was arrested and during the six years in Israeli prison she read Gandhi, Mandela, and befriended an Israeli woman prison guard who treated her kindly. When she was released the combat officer and the woman, the the former terrorist, met in a group called, anybody? Combatants for Peace. And there's a fantastic film that just came out about that as well that I think is playing tonight somewhere in Berkeley. Um, So um, they, the combatants are former killers or intend to kill and both sides proclaim we refuse to take part anymore in the mutual bloodletting. We will act only by nonviolent means so that each side will come to understand the national aspirations of the other. Ali Abu Awad is a Palestinian who grew up in the West Bank and... Um, He grew up right next to a Jewish settlement, separated by a wall, a low wall. And at night, they could hear each other's TVs, but they had never met. They had never talked. He turned his. He is somebody who um, was also imprisoned. He was imprisoned at the same time his mother was imprisoned. He was a teenager then. He was trying to get to see his mother. His brother was killed, um, you know, in in a demonstration. So um, he turned his family's empty piece of land into a place for Israeli settlers and Palestinians on the West Bank to meet, um, which gets a lot of flack from the Israeli left, right? Because a settler shouldn't be there. But he says, whatever happens, whether it's one state, two states, three states, cantonization, whatever, we're going to be having to talk to each other and face each other. And um, I've heard stories from the settlers um, that are phenomenal, like people who never noticed a Palestinian as they were driving through the West Bank, thought they were, there was no one there but them, or, or um, uh, w- refused to speak to them because they thought that they were all terrorists, just do 180 and um, become close friends. Um, let's see. The,
0: the girl who was running towards the... What happened to her? Yeah, what
1: happened to her. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, so the story is, is that he froze at that point. He realized that he couldn't do this anymore, and that's why he ended up in Combatants for Peace. He said, "This is not I don't ever want to be in a situation again where I have to decide where I'm going to shoot a child because she might be have a bomb strapped to her." And um, so he was one of uh, one of the people that helped found Combatants for
0: Peace. And what was she running towards him about? Probably
1: just you know out of fear. She like everybody. Her parents. Were, everybody was frozen, and she like broke out or something like that. Yeah.
0: So it, it seems that in, in each of these stories, one of the threads is that somebody can hold the other in a certain way according to their beliefs and what they've, what they've learned. Um, and then when they see past their beliefs and connect with, mm-hmm. with the person... That there, there's a possibility of of change and transformation.
1: Not only that, but when that happens, um, people often say that we could we could we could write the peace agreement today in detail, because as soon as there's trust, there's an open possibility for you know um, how to how to care for the other, how to how to take care and make sure the other is going to be okay in this. If, and when there's not trust, you can write the most brilliant and detailed. Agreement and
0: so, how in in your looking at all these um, experiences and events, how what would be your formula for creating somehow creating trust when there hasn't been?
1: Mm. So, um, in what's been going on there to do that? Is happening because there, because all of us um, have such different ways of being. Um, I'm, m- I'm missing the name now, but there's an African American mystic you know, who, is, who says that um, your role in changing the world is not to notice what needs to happen and do it, but to do something that makes you most alive. Yeah, uh, Howard
0: uh, Thurman. Thurman. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. don't um, don't ask the world, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what what, what makes, you makes you come alive, makes alive, alive, because. The world needs people who come you. alive.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, in this particular area of grassroots work, um, there are artists who are working together. There are environmentalists, there are science, there are doctors, there are garage mechanics, there are um, lawyers and prisoners, um, students and professors, uh, there are women and children, um, there are lesbians and gay and everybody um, in between. Um, and there are people of all um, identities. The, yeah, and, and, so, and in the process um, <clears throat> of doing the work, um, you know, which is aimed at trust for each other, they're actually reaching a much wider um, swath of the population. So they've gained rights for um, Mizrahi Israeli Jews. Um, over half the, popu- the Jewish population in Israel comes from Middle Eastern heritage, somewhere, somewhere in the Middle East or North Africa. Um, and they are also um, in, in a position of inequality to the European Jews. Um, all of those groups that I mentioned that are, are women's rights, um, health care, uh, um, human rights abuses, people are you know, working on be, making people more aware of. Um, they're doing it in all different ways. Can I read one more initiative? Is the last okay. one. <laughs> this is um, kind of outrageous. So four Israeli Jews, four Palestinian Arabs, are chosen for their physical stamina and their entrenched opposition to the other. They travel together to Antarctica to make an unbearably treacherous climb up a formidable mountain sheathed in ice. They pull each other up the mountain with ropes, suffering together, repeatedly saving each other's lives, and they have argued vehemently every step of the way. (laughs) But... When they reach the top, they agree that if Israelis and Palestinians can do this together, they can do anything. So it can be anything. It can be in any way. And I think it's a matter of... Um, so, it's not, so not all uh, initiatives are equal. I think that um, the ones that are most effective are the ones that are able to address inequality in some way, like understand that this is not mutual. Um, let see. I'm going to read one more passage. I'm waiting for him to like the cane Mm -hmm. Uh, Activism occurs between two sides that are not equal There's no symmetry, no mutuality Israel's a state with an organized army Palestinians are a dispossessed stateless people Um, Jewish Israelis are a tiny minority in an Arab-Muslim Middle East and an outpost of Western culture that powers of the West alternately back and condemn this intertwining of two one-way inequalities demands a unique response that this joint resistance can provide by unwinding strands of who's, who's, who has to take responsibility for what. And the most successful initiatives um, are able to do that. Some overlook it and get into this mutual thing, and it's not, as, it's not quite as effective. So that's one of the things that are important for building trust, I think. Mm-hmm. Because you, you, in, the, in, in the initiative... Um, you can learn to respect each other as equals, and then you go out into the world, and it's a different world out there. So the other thing is that the most effective thing for building trust are programs that have continuity. So theres you may have heard of Seeds of Peace. It has a summer camp in Maine that they bring um, teenage uh, Palestinians and Israelis to spend three intensive weeks working together as well as playing together. And... um, when they go home, their eyes have been opened and they see their own society and in, um, in the, the bigotry and the, the closed-mindedness and the closed-heartedness, and they're alone, right? And so there are these networks that keep them connected, and since the rise of social media, um, it's been much easier to do that. They stay in touch with all kinds of cell phones. And mm-hmm.
0: So uh, just thinking about what you've learned in your research and, say, applying it to people here, uh, right now in this, in this country and probably a lot of different places in the world, but particularly in this country, there's more than ever a, a need to get beyond beliefs and othering Oh, if those bad guys would only change um, and we all are becoming more and more aware that there there are people who might think differently than than uh than you, but have their own legitimate concerns and fears and and frustrations and angers and all so just hypothetically imagine that. You were um, in a room with people <laughs> yeah. who might think differently from each other. Mm-hmm. What What have you could you bring from your research uh, that mm-hmm. say mm-hmm. W- we could use as tools or as as um, uh, approaches and strategies to start. Uh, breaking down those barriers.
1: Before I answer that, I'm just going to say that uh, apropos to what you said, that uh, the book came out on Election Day. It was released on Election Day. And so I started the book tour, right? And um, up to that moment um, of this day after Election Day, um, I had thought I was doing this for Palestinians and Israelis to give people um, a way to support them more in this, right? And then everybody saw it the opposite way that, um, you know, as you say, there's um, these people were able to do something over tremendous polarization and, um, uh, and impossible polit- political conditions, right? And guess where we are now? <laughs> um, and, you know, even before that happened, um, I remember a moment where I was making my 200 phone calls the day before the uh, two days, or three days before the election, and... Um, you know, to get out the vote. And it was supposed to be the list that was supporting Hillary. And I kept getting, um, in Wisconsin and all these places, I kept getting Trump supporters. And um, one woman was my age, I remember, because you see their age and their name and the city that they're from. And um, she was so foreign-sounding to me. I mean, she was an American. She wasn't from another country. But for me, the tone of her voice, the way she spoke... Um, i was heartbroken i was i was scared i thought like why this this is um yeah the um the uh, the deeper the othering feels the the so that's just hard to to live with that so um so after the election, um, as I was going around talking about this, um, I was fantasizing that one of the things um, that I could imagine, it would have to be um, organized with skillful people, but there's so many skillful people now in this, which is to have like something, like to use social media like maybe Skype circles, where they'd have to be a rural person and an urban person and a uh, working class and an owning class and a um, women and men and African American white and different points along the gender spectrum and um, and to um, have a skillful means of, of setting up listening, listening circles. They could do, you know, people could listen to each other. I'm concerned because, I'm, I mean, I love the organizing that's gone on now, but I don't see that yet. I want to, t- I want to talk to that woman. Yeah. I want to find a way to, like... And when you talk, um, it's not, you're not talking about politics, you're talking about your lives, because the deeper you go, you know, the desires for what we want as human beings are n- oh, never that, that different we just think that there are tremendously different ways of getting there that are so threatening sounding.
0: So what would, what would you suggest somebody either saying or opening a dialogue? Uh, how do you...
1: I would set up a sacred listening space and let people talk about their lives. Okay. I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to be so othered from those people. I want them to know me. I want to know who they are. I want to know what they care about. I want to know what their suffering has been. Mm-hmm. I, want to, I want to be able to stand with them in that suffering, and I want to be able to feel the, um, the joy of connection, of, uh, of human beings connecting. It's hard to do that um, in a political discussion. <laughs> so I, I really, um, what, I, what I saw working a lot here, but this is, it's not the end, or be, it's, there's no, no one way, right? But um, what I saw is that when people really listened mm-hmm. deeply mm-hmm. and had to sit with their own discomfort, Um, And then got to tell their own story as well, as opposed to respond or attack or whatever that. um, And that, you know, if you can have emotional release, that that helps as well. But, um, you know, what you'll see in the book is that, like, there's artists that get together. Like, there could be artists from all those divides, building something together, creating. There are people from both of those divides who you could come together for... um, you know a week for some kind of activity i i don't know there's there's so many ways mm-hmm. i think that um I think that reading the book will stimulate mm-hmm. a lot of the thinking on that
0: but it, oh, it sounds it sounds like uh, you're you're saying that listening and uh, really being interested in understanding another's pain is um, is is a key piece mm-hmm. in this
1: and watching your own mind and heart you know respond because. Somebody may be talking, and you want to kill them, <laughs> or whatever comes up. That you know, this it, like you, you the dehuman the way we dehumanize each other would have to be looked at and purified, mm-hmm. right? In some way, would have to like okay. That lining, uh, What's that? So.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to repeat it for for the people listening. Uh, Uh, to the recording Uh, the question was could you speak more about minding your own reaction in in the listening experience
1: Um, well I'll start (laughs) in a place that felt like paradise to me where I felt that it was happening and that was in this one month retreat where I look at these faces and they're my family now and we never spoke Um, (laughs) and uh, so our personalities right? Always elicit somebody else's personality's reaction. But even without speaking, I could look at somebody and have a whole story going on in my mind and then realize it had nothing to do with reality over and over. So um, our concepts of ourselves we see when we sit have nothing to do with the deeper, broader reality of who we are. We don't know who we are. We don't know what we're doing here, right? So we grab and make up stories so that... Um, we have something to hold on to. <laughs> um, and so I think any therapist, which I'm not, knows that when you listen to someone, you're going to have a reaction. But to help them or to be with them or to stand with them in their pain, um, you have to look at that and hold that and know that it's just this personality's emotions going on, This, you know, just the stuff that goes on inside of us, and honor that and let it go and come back to the other person.
0: And, and uh, just on a... On a practice level, a Dharma practice level is, uh, as as Sheila's saying, giving giving space to whatever the feelings are. But once you put those feelings, express them in words, you can't take them back. So, uh, and and there's a you know there's a whole lot more cleaning up to do um, than when you. When you give space to feel what you're feeling and even even naming wow i'm I'm feeling really confused now or i'm feeling really um, um, uh, scared now to name your own experience if there's if there's not a um, a, a space to just process it internally, but there's something about th- Owning your own experience instead of saying, you are saying something wrong and you are making me angry is very different than, oh, when I hear that, I get confused and I get frustrated and I feel anger coming and or I'm, I'm, I get a little uh, scared and reactive and I just want to name that's what's going on inside of me. Without blaming the other person, but just saying, "This is what goes on for me. What goes on for you?" Uh, then, then you can start to tune into each other's genuine r- reality without feeling like you are throwing gas on the uh, on the uh, on the situation and, and saying you are doing this and it's your fault. But just, "Oh, this is what's happening for me." And that's a, a basic principle of taking Dharma practice internally. And, and naming it um, in real time—that's
1: a beautiful description. And I just want to warn you that my husband is here, and don't ask him if I can do that.
0: <laughs> now, that's part of the process. The, that's the final frontier. You know, that's exactly. the one's, yeah. one's closest to. You. My wife is here too, and we can—they can have a, 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 a dialogue can have, with each they other too. have a support too. group yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So and we we do have a- Andrew's got the uh, the mic and maybe we can uh, open it up to some some questions or, or comments.
2: Hi Sheila, for the first time in a month, oh, it's nice to hear you speak. I can hear your voice. <laughs> uh, this is great. We didn't know we were coming.
0: Put to. it right close to. Oh, you.
2: this is great. We didn't know we were coming to. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I really appreciate what you shared about uh, a. Uh, more effective initiatives really naming that more systemic inequity. And I'm wondering if you can give examples of how that was done um, within the interaction or the organization. It really names um, sort of the oppressions that are going on that might get lost in those more um, personal stories. That's
1: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah, a great question. And it's so many different levels to talk about. So like on a, just on a simple external structural level... The idea of having leadership be joint right, um, and having people who are supporting the organization, the board and all that be joint, and then making sure you have um, the numbers of people who there's like, that there 's enough support there 's um, there's an issue of language right if you do it in the, ma- the dominant language of Israel of Hebrew, then Arabs feel othered um, and um, so you do it in a neutral language where you always have translation. So there's like little details like that, but you have to also be very explicit. Um, You have to give people a chance to talk about their experience on both sides, right? Um, And because it's two one-way oppressions, um, both sides have to listen to each other, which is tricky, right? In all the other nonviolent grassroots movements that had an impact, you know, in the 20th century, like um, getting the British out of India, right, the um, and bringing down apartheid and the civil rights movement that all employed some nonviolent means, Um, there was one enemy. And I think here um, people have to understand that both people have two enemies. um, And um, Israelis uh, are often um, not aware that they are the oppressors because they have always been the ones who are persecuted, right? So they have to find a way, there's a way that they have to find to listen to what the consequences of their actions are for Palestinians. Palestinians, on the other hand, have to realize they're also part of a larger Arab and Muslim world um, that um, uh, has been has had its own history. Uh, With that, not the same as Europe at all, but um, that uh, that they have some responsibility in um, making Israelis feel safe and standing up for no more Jewish lives being lost for any reason, right? No good reasons.
0: So, in in a sense, um, something that that comes to my mind as you say that, is um, rather than you're bad or you're, uh, your side is bad, just seeing cause and effect and cause and effect and, and generations of um, results of actions, if you see it in, in that light, we're all carrying the, the, the history of the baggage, including say in, in in our country with there's Black Lives Matter, and there that, that doesn't come out of or and, and all the anger and the uh, the frustration uh, doesn't come out of out of thin air. Uh, there's uh, centuries of, of persecution and uh that can come out in real skillful ways or real frustrating and, and 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 angry ways and there's the same with the people who might support uh the 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 more conservative elements having their own history and their own uh, I remember reading um Uh, in this wonderful book, The Compassionate Life, by Mark Ian Barish, my favorite book on compassion. And he talks about how um, shame and humiliation are most of the time the key elements in a very strong reaction of of, uh, unskillful expression and anger that if If your culture has been shamed or you've been shamed or or suppressed or humiliated, there's got to be generally karmic consequences of that and And to see the bigger picture, cause and effect and, and, and causes and conditions, uh, once you kind of see that, you you get a much bigger picture where the blame, is is seen through and, and just uh, it, it can be removed to some extent and see oh that's why somebody would act the way they they do that's why the Israeli the Israelis who are so bent on settlements are feeling what they do and that's why the, the suicide bombers are, are, are doing what they do it's just you know, a basic Dharma principle of, of understanding, compassionate understanding of the conditions that would bring somebody uh, to the perspective that they do.
1: Yes, yes. And um, to widen it a little bit, to step back even more and to complicate it a little bit more, um, Emmanuel Levinas, also a philosopher, says that um, the history of the other that I have never experienced um, is my history too. Right, so we all have the share in the shame when there's racism. We're all we're all feeling the shame, and um, and then Norman Fisher has said that all the suffering and all the joys and all the anxiety and all the um, aspirations of human beings throughout history all live in our, each of our bodies. Right, so we've all we've got to do the work together. <laughs> there's No, by no, no the way.
0: Thank you. And and here's some some hands. Yeah, Wendy.
2: Hi, I just really want to thank you so much for being here. Just listening to you gives me um, a lot of hope. Um, I'm Jewish and I come uh, from, I'm including my husband's family, uh, and my family. Uh, There's people all over the map in terms of uh, Israel, people who have emigrated to Israel, been in the army, people who are madly supporting, I'm forgetting the name of the organization, it, you probably know it, but it's, it's a pretty you know, it's definitely on the right-wing side of things here in the United States. Am I, okay, oh that's better. Okay, so um, I, I guess I, I wanted to say a couple things. One was, um, I guess my question is, you had, you had talked about, or alluded to the hiddenness of these initiatives. You know, this is, like, big news for us. We're, the, the, the media feeds us all the other stuff. Um, so, so that is my question to, to, to understand more about the hiddenness and what it is that keeps things being hidden like this. Uh, then secondly, I just wanted to say that last week, um, Kate did a, a lovely um, Dharma talk, and she was talking about the beloved community that, that Martin Luther King has talked about um, in his work the beloved community that includes not only us, but, but those that we would be othering. And it sounds to me like in these initiatives, particularly the ones that are most effective, it is about creating the beloved community. Mm-hmm. It is about creating the community that includes everyone. Mm-hmm. And that's when it's most powerful.
1: Yes. Yes, it is. That's true. Um, the um, the sad part of that is that um, the group the strength of the of what I um, what I include in the book is that it's so diverse and that's also the that undermines it. Because if I, as an artist, can do my artwork with these artists here, I don't want to stand on the front lines. You know, I don't, I don't like that, that group is too radical, and that group is too right wing, and that group is too this, and this group is, right? So everybody, it, it, it makes for a broad, cantankerous bank, a uh, 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 foundation of resistance, but it's not a movement, right, because of the difference. Um, in terms of the hiddenness, both societies have not had the luxury Um, of valuing coexistence because they've been fighting for national existence. And, um, you know, if the whole world stood up, um, especially the Arab Muslim world said, you know, we're going to defend and protect Israel, the conflict would end in a moment. Because right, they would stop. They, okay, drop the weapon, someone else is going to defend us. I mean, that's kind of a little bit Pollyanna, but <laughs> um, it's the same, and the same thing. It's like the whole Jewish world, you know, unified and said, we stand up, we will never harm another Palestinian's life, and their nationalism is legit, right? So, um, so the, the hiddenness is that when they do this work, uh, people do die from doing it. Um, Israelis have died, and, and more Palestinians have died from their own people's fire right, like Rabin being shot at a, at a, at a peace rally. And um, so to protect them, in some ways it's been good that it's been hidden, but um, there are now organizations that whose mission it is to make them more um, uh, accessible. So like uh, Just Vision is a Palestinian-Israeli joint group that is devoted to media. They have a fabulous website with lots of stories like these, and they've made incredible films. If you haven't seen Encounter Point or Boudrus, um, a lot of their films really show um, the difficulties and the inspiration of the work together.
0: Thank you. Um, we, we have, okay, one, one last one. Then we should go.
2: Uh, can, can
1: you hear me? Put it right next to your lips. Close? Yeah, close.
0: Like that? And speak up. Closer. Yeah. Okay. Oh, now you can hear me.
1: So I guess piggybacking a little bit on the hidden question. You also mentioned that it's, this work is still condemned by uh, both sides. And I'm curious if you know um, or you have a take on why. And if you think it has to do with if you listen, uh, you give up your own story. Or if you listen, you're betraying your own story. And so it's it's uh, sort of and if that's what's happening, it's uh, how does one sort of give up that fear as a participant and say okay, uh, you know this is constructive. Mm-hmm. So beautiful. That's basically. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a. Okay, so um, when I started this work forty years ago, um, there were two entirely different stories—the dual and dueling narratives of the Palestinians—really, very, very separate. Um, now there are many Palestinians and um, Israelis whose narrative overlaps a little bit, <laughs> and the narrative in my in both of my books actually draw from both of them and try to make try to weave a narrative together. But you're right, giving up um, your own story. But it's such a relief when um, when people get to do that, right? There's a, a, definite, a fear and a threat, and some people can't bear it. But um, when they do, the connection that gets made makes us such larger, comes, comes so much closer to the reality of who we are together, right? We don't know who we are, we don't know what we're doing, but we know that we have to go through this together. That's, and, and that allows that reality to come out. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh, and maybe if, you, if there are other questions, you can uh, come up after. So um, when, uh, you,
1: when I sign books for you, you ha- if you have questions, yeah. I'll... <laughs> uh, what, what's, and the title of the book is... The title of the book is Connecting with the Enemy. There's yeah. a bunch of them back there. Um, a Century of Palestinian-Israeli Joint Nonviolence. It's mm-hmm. the first comprehensive history of the grassroots movement. It's not comprehensive comprehensive because it's the tip of the iceberg, those 500 initiatives.
0: Mm-hmm. Nice. Nice. Did, was it a... An announcement? Okay. Yeah. Right. Well,
2: I just want to say if you're interested in this um, in this topic and this issue, um, my brother has a performance piece that he created. It started as a stage piece, and it's turned into a movie. It's called Wrestling Jerusalem, and he plays 17 different characters, and it's all about the othering and different viewpoints hmm. and... Um, it's quite something. It's actually playing um, this Sunday um, at the Smith Rafael Theater. He's been touring it around the country, and um, it's, a, it's a really phenomenal piece. So I recommend you try to see it.
0: Nice. This Sunday at the San Rafael at the Rafael Theater. Great. Thank you. Thank oh, you. So thank you very much, Sheila, and thanks for your work that you're doing in uh, expanding people's consciousness and possibilities. We, this is this is the time to learn to listen to each other and really hear each other. So we'll just close with a, a short loving kindness. Feel the urge for peace within your heart and know that it's in just about every human heart wants to be safe, wants to express their kindness whenever possible, and that we need to really understand and learn from each other and see we're not all that different deep down. May all see through their fears and projections and open to the caring heart that's right inside, may all learn to share their love well, and may all beings find inner peace and work for peace on this planet, and may any good that comes from our sharing the evening together uh, be shared with all beings everywhere. Thanks for coming. Thanks again, Sheila. Have a great week and see you next week. Uh, If you can help put the chairs back very carefully, that'd be great.